Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. Oh, we got a lot of topics in this one. Hey, do the Rockets have a new future all-star? We'll hit on that. The latest Astros training camp news, big changes on the horizon for Major League Baseball, and Nick Casario is working his tail off. Yeah. Joining me is my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and longtime journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, since the Rockets look like the Washington Generals of the NBA, I'll let you bat lead off with the Astros. Well, at least you're you're putting it in a positive light, Robert. I mean, the Washington Generals, it was pretty entertaining to watch with the Globetrotters. But anyway, yeah, let's start with some baseball. First of all, because it is my favorite sport of all of them. I, I, I grew up watching baseball right at the beginning. It was the first sport I ever followed. So I'm really excited that baseball is coming. And at least, you know, at this moment, you know, we, we can point to the Astros as a positive, uh, as opposed to the Rockets and the Texans. So, yeah, I'm more than happy to start off with baseball. We're getting later into spring training, Robert, so some things are starting to fall into line with the Astros in some good ways. You know, Alex Bregman has been out. Haven't seen him at all because of uh, an injury, so he's coming back today as we record this. Jordan Alvarez, we're, we're seeing him coming yes, back. Yes, yes. Yeah, that, that's where, you know, I, I'm telling you, I, I still just drop everything I'm doing when this guy comes up to bat, and even if it's spring training, I wanted to see what he could do, you know? That's just the kind of aura this guy has. So it's good to see him come back. They're going to bring him, you know, you're not going to see him play the outfield anytime soon, I don't think. But, we, you know, the Astros are starting to get some guys back that, quite honestly, Robert, we're pinning our hopes on them to to get us through this season. Of course, the big question is the pitching. You had all these pitchers out with, you know, COVID protocols and some other things. We do know one thing for sure, unless, of course, something terrible happens between now and then. Zach Grinke is your opening day starter. So, yeah, some things are falling into place for the Astros. We're getting later into spring training. So, for me, it's just exciting, you know, that April 1st, it's not going to be that far away and the regular season will start. Yeah, you just said something I didn't like too much because at the end of last season, I thought, yeah, Zach Grinke, that's the worst Astros starter easily. And now he's the opening day starter. I mean, that's just... It's just disappointing. I, I, I kind of figured it was going to happen. Oh, he's the veteran. He might be a future Hall of Famer, former Cy Young winner. I, I get it. You know, he he's somebody that, you know, you just think, okay, he, he gets the nod because – but it's he's not as good as Lance McCullers. He's not as good as Christian Javier, I think, is going to be again this year. I, I'm, I'm very confident. We didn't see a fluke last year with Christian Javier. He's not as good as those guys. I think he's your fifth starter, isn't he? You know, if you look at it, Robert, that's probably true. But again, you know, he's the veteran. You know, we may not think he's an ace, but obviously Dusty Baker thinks he is. You know, and with Christian Javier, I mean, he's he's kind of behind a little bit this year. So, you know, coming into spring training with all that's been going on with him, I mean, he could certainly make the start. I mean, what really hurts is that you know that if Framber Valdez had been here, he would have been your opening day starter. And then, you know, everything would fall into place. But I think it's just a case, you know, Dusty, again, being Dusty, being old school, he's going to go with the veteran that he feels is a steady starting the first day of the season, and then you go from there. We still don't know who the leadoff hitter is going to be. Dusty keeps adding guys to the list. It was like, well, there, maybe it's Carlos Correa. I could include him and this guy and that. And he, and he hasn't got to the name that I, I'm with on this, and that's uh, Kyle Tucker. 
Uh, but, you know, Miles Straw, he's playing well. He's making himself a, a case for it, but it's spring training. And, and you go into, I mean, training camp or spring training in Major League Baseball, you kind of have to throw everything out. Look, Jose Altuve is hitting, was he at like 100 right now? I mean, that's 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 spring training for you. Yeah, that's spring training. And I, I certainly hope that doesn't hold up. You know, the more I think about this, Robert, the more I, I kind of like the fact that they are thinking of putting Carlos Correa in that leadoff spot just because, look, I mean, nobody's going to replace Springer. We, we've already talked about that. But if you're looking for that prototype of, the, you know, the person that could at least take up some of the slack, I mean, Correa would fit the bill in the sense that, you know, he can give you power when you need it. I mean, maybe he can learn to hit a, an occasional leadoff home run the way Springer does, certainly more so than a mile straw or a Jose Altuve. Now, Kyle Tucker, yeah, I, I wouldn't have a problem with Kyle being in that leadoff spot because, we, as we've mentioned before, you know, if he gets on base, he's a smart base runner. I don't know, but but I, I think they should take a little longer look at Correa at, as a possibility at, at the leadoff spot. Much better option than Miles Straw and... He's a much better base runner than George Springer was. Remember, George Springer could not steal bases. Absolutely. And and I still don't think Jose Altuve is the greatest base runner that ever lived either. Uh, you know, and, and coupled with the fact, let's be honest, Jose doesn't want to hit leadoff. Now, obviously, he's always been a team guy. So if that's what Dusty wants him to do, he'll do it. But I don't think he's committed to that spot. So I would say, really, between Carlos Correa and Miles Straw, that's probably the, the top two candidates that that you probably have yeah they've thrown in jose siri at the top but he's not i certainly don't think he's a candidate so i think those are the top two guys that you're going to be looking at coming down the stretch how are we looking with all those covid cases because there was what eight of them last week eight guys that were still sitting out yeah and i think they're they're all coming back but you know of course that they missed all that time and so that's the biggest problem is boy when you're pitching you're getting behind uh with spring training you just wonder how many of these guys can get ramped up and ready when the regular season starts. And I, I think there's going to be delay to, to some extent with that. You starting to get worried about Pedro Baez because I saw he's maybe the biggest delay. And, and that was your biggest bullpen signing of the offseason. Yeah, you were hoping because you were definitely going to count on him to to bolster that bullpen. And yeah, the problem is that Dusty, even Dusty himself said the other day, it's getting late in regards to Pedro Baez and so, you know, there are some real question marks with the Astros. I mean, I'm not fully confident that they can get off to a great start considering, you know, the the flux of the pitching. You know, yeah, Alex Bregman is coming back. But as we know, Alex is typically a slow starter anyway. You know, even if he's fully healthy, he just doesn't. The first month or two of the season, he, he just it takes him a while to get going. And now he's even further behind because of the injury. So, you know, there is just some question marks, even in the Astros batting lineup, you know, with the leadoff spot, what can Bregman do? I will tell you this, Robert, is that we've got to find a way to keep Jordan Alvarez in the lineup, not just for the obvious reasons, but I mean to tell you, every time he's in there, Yuli Gurriel hits, hits, hits. I don't care if we have to prop him up in a wheelchair to keep him in the lineup, but you put Yuli Gurriel after him, and great things just seem to happen with Gurriel's bat. You got any other Astros stuff? Because I want to get to these Major League Baseball potential, maybe rules changes down the road. That, that's kind of fun. Yeah, it is kind of fun. And I, I do want to take a look at that. But uh, as far as the Astros, no, not really. I mean, there's nothing earth shattering except that 
you're slowly starting to see guys play a little bit more in spring training. Uh, I am going to be really intrigued when the minor league seasons start because you're going to have all your affiliates, your, your double and triple A anyway, practically in your own backyard. Certainly your triple A team is going to be in your backyard. And then you have Corpus Christi. That's going to be fun to watch as we get further down the road. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. I'm like, well, do I want to go to a see a game, you know, a Skeeters game? And who do I want to watch? Who's going to be down there that I want to watch this year? It might be fun if somebody like uh, Pedro Leon's down there. I mean, this is we're talking, they're saying five-tool guy. We're talking about somebody that uh, they're pretty excited about and a, a potential future major leaguer. Yuli is you know, saying this guy's focused, he's going to be good and he's going to be good fast. And I, I trust you, Lee, on that. I mean, it's a fellow Cuban, so he's biased, but that's that's potentially interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And and he will be a guy to watch. And, and that's probably where he's going to be, uh, possibly in the AAA level. But uh, of course, I live in Austin, so I won't get too many opportunities to get to Houston and, and watch, you know, the Skeeters or Astros or whomever. But uh, I don't know. Have you ever been to Constellation Field, Robert? We did an interview for Houston Sports Talk with the former play-by-play voice down there, but I haven't been there for. I just went to, you know, do the interview. I, I got to see the field a little bit, but not really watch a game there. I mean, it's it's a nice minor league ballpark. I, I I don't think it's anything special in that. You know, some of these other minor league ballparks, they've got a little bit more you know, going on, there might be stuff surrounding the ballpark that makes it a little bit more interesting. I mean, I, I went to one of the best minor league ballparks in the country when I went to the one in the Quad Cities, the former Astros single A affiliate with this Ferris wheel in the back. And then they, but it was by the river, which was really cool. But then, you know, Memphis is in the middle of downtown, you know, you're right there in the middle of everything. Uh, you're a short walk from Beale street, but you've got downtown as your surrounding. So those are a couple of the more amazing ones. And the Round Rock one, I've 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 gone to that one and I've seen what that looks like. Yeah, I've like. been to that numerous times. Yeah, yeah. It's got a little bit of stuff to it, but it's it's not near anything. It doesn't have anything surrounding it that kind of makes it fun. Well, the good news is baseball is almost here. It is here, at least, you know, in the regular season is almost here. So right now, as I said, we just need to keep it positive until the Astros start playing and hopefully get off to a good start. What about these rule changes? Let's go over some of these because I, I, I've i been just fascinated by with what, what uh, Major League Baseball is looking at trying to implement in the minor leagues. Yeah, this is fascinating. I mean, uh, there's there's a number of them, and, and they're not going to be all over the minor leagues. They, they've kind of divided them into not only categories, but into certain minor leagues or, or certain classifications of the minor leagues going to be using these rule changes. Like, for instance, at the AAA level only, this is this was the one that was the most intriguing to me, I think, is the size of the bases. They're, they're going to increase them. The size of first, second, and third base, they're going to increase it from 15 to 18 square inches. And what they're trying to do here, Robert, is they're, they're hoping this is going to reduce collisions. So, that I mean, that's pretty intriguing. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm a baseball purist. I'm, I'm not big into some of these rule changes that they've been talking about the past few years. But, you know, as I took a look at these, I, I really can't find too many – things wrong with these and the size of the bases. I mean, I don't know how much we as the fans are going to notice that. I'm sure the players will to just to some extent, but that's one of the more intriguing ones is increasing the size of first through third base. What is to test out there? Why don't they just implement that? What do they think they're going to find out by increasing the bases? What three inches in, in a couple of different, I mean, just do it. <laughs> yeah. Three square inches. 
Yeah, I know. I, that one, I mean, to me, that that's more of a minor thing that they could just say, well, let's just do it. I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I hadn't thought about that. Of, I guess they just want to see if the good hard numbers really make a difference before they do it. But I mean, I have to say, if you're going to experiment, the minor leagues is the place to do it and not the majors. What else? What, which ones did you find interesting besides that, that one? I mean, there's some that we've kind of expected. Yeah, for sure. Now you get into the double A ball. Uh, teams are going to be limited in how they deploy the shift. And I'll be honest, I have never been a fan of the shift. I know that, you know, if, if you're there, there are some, I think, who believe, look, if a team should be able to play any kind of defense they want. But again, my, my purest juices are kicking in here. So what they're going to do, and this is in double-A ball, by the way, the defense has to have a minimum of four players on the infield, and each of them have to have both feet completely in front of the outer boundary of the infield dirt. Yeah, I know that's kind of technical in, in nature, but essentially you've got to have four infielders regardless, and that is something I think is really big. I don't understand why these baseball purists are all pissy about it. Like I don't know me. what a better, <laughs> better word. Like what's the big deal about um, implementing some things that you can't do on defense. They act like uh, they go, Oh, well, you know, you should be able to play any way you want to. Well, in the NBA, can you just play any defense you want to, or do they have rules to it? Yeah. They got rules to the type of defense. You, you can't do particular things on defense or they will call a technical foul on you if you do that. It, it, well, in, other, right. in other sports, th there are things that they do that say, they say, well, you can't do your defense that way. I, I don't get it. You know, we've got rules for everything. Why not where, you know, where you play guys is, is part of the deal. I, 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 you know, you can go too far, but there's just some basic stuff. I, I, I'm glad to see them at least thinking about. Well, here's the one thing I do find wrong with this rule, Robert. And as I said, I, I was, you know, it sounds like I'm, getting a bit technical, but you, you not only, you have to have a minimum of four players on the infield. I, I have no problem with that, but each of whom having both feet completely in front of the outer boundary of the infield dirt. Now here's the other part of this. The league may require, and, and I'm saying may that's, that's what it says here. So I'm, I don't know if they're going to totally do this or not, but two of the infielders have to be entirely positioned on either side of second base. And they're, they're thinking about doing that, in the second half of the double A season. I think that's a bit much. I mean, just just say you need four guys on the infield and let them, you know, kind of hop around as they were. That that's the only thing a problem I have with that rule. I, I don't know. I, I that's one that I'm I'm open to. I'm open to where you just can't play three guys way on the right side or three guys way on the left side. I I, I guess I'm open to it. I mean I, I thought at some point we were gonna have some Tony Gwynns that go Hey, you know what? You you got one fielder over here. I'm going to learn to hit to the left side when you load up on me on the right side. But it hasn't happened, Stephen. It's not going to happen. I guess it's just too hard in baseball to do that. Harder in Major League Baseball than guys like Tony Gwynn and Wade Boggs, the guys that we grew up with, used to make it look. Well, that's right. I mean, as we've said, I, I know I've said this many times, and we've heard this so many times that baseball is pretty hard sport. You know, hitting a ball that's coming at you at, you know, 80, 90 something miles an hour, it's pretty hard to do. So when you talk about getting really specific and hitting it to a specific side of the field, yeah, it's, you know, it, it is very difficult to do that. What else? What are the other rules that struck you? At high A level, they're talking about that pitchers will now have to disengage the rubber prior to throwing to any base or a balk is going to be called. 
that's one that I probably kind of expected that. Uh, but that's that's one the thing that they're going to try in high A ball. The other thing that I heard was, and this is probably going to be one of the more controversial ones, I think, is that you can only throw to first base two times in a row. You can't do it three times before a pitch. Is, and th- is that correct? That is correct. That is something that uh, they're going to do. It's it, lower A teams, uh, two step offs or or pickoff attempts per plate appearance. And and that is when there's at least one runner on base. If you do it a third time and the runner gets back safely, then it's a balk. And that is one rule I like, Robert, because how many times do you see a pitcher throw four, five, six times over? I know that, you you know, you say, well, you know, you're trying to keep the runner from stealing. Well, if he's going to steal, he's going to steal. And, uh, of course, you know, this is more of a, a mental thing, obviously. But some team, people feel like, well, it's going to get in the pitcher's head and he's not concentrating on the hitter. Well, that's. That's an individual thing, but I actually like the the two step off rule, and that, that's something that I hope will make it to the majors. I agree. You know how I am about games being too long, and sometimes it's like a big rain delay when a guy is just throwing to first fourteen, fifteen times. It doesn't seem like it happens as much as it used to because base stealing isn't what it used to be. No, it's not, and usually it only happens with certain pitchers. There, there are just certain pitchers you know are going to throw four, five, six times over, but honestly. It just it slows down the game, and I, I just don't see the point of, you know, the runner's just going to keep taking a lead off and keep daring you to to throw him out. So I just think two is enough. Two is enough. It's per plate appearance, so I think that's more than enough. All right, the one that, you know, this is a, something that they are going to try, and they've been trying in some of the minor leagues. And, and, you know, we keep talking about, you know, automated strike zones, and, and that has been going on for – a while now and we see an automated strike zone on television for years we've seen it it's like it's there it's not some magic thing in the future we've been watching it what i don't understand steven is okay so we're not going to call every ball and strike with the automated strike zone but why can't we do it where you at least challenge an umpire so you've got you know four challenges a game or you've got one challenge an inning or something like that because you know that would be a way to incorporate it in a small way and see how it works before you do it in in a big way and I also think it's a good way to get Angel Hernandez finally kicked out of the Major League Baseball (laughs) that's what you were really leading to right is to get Angel Hernandez kicked out of baseball because he's one of the worst at it I, I mean, my biggest problem with the umpires, the plate umpires, is that each one of them seems to have their own strike zone instead of what the rule book says. I mean, you grew up knowing exactly what the strike zone is, but when you see some of these umpires like Angel Hernandez and I think, you know, Joe West and some of the others have been real particular about it, it it's like game to game. You have no idea what their strike zone is going to be. And that's why I do like the automatic ball and strike system. But yeah, that's the one or one of the purest rules, I guess, has always been in play is you don't argue balls and strikes with the umpire. Well, why not? I've always said, why not? If it's wrong, it's wrong. I don't care if it's balls and strikes, whether a guy's thrown out at second base or is safe, whatever the case, if you're wrong, you're wrong. And so the automatic ball and strike system is what we're talking about, of course. And they're going to do this in some of the the lower minor leagues. I think the Southeast teams are going to try it out. It's something we know has been coming for a long time. So it'll be interesting to keep our eye on that. Let's, let's, I don't want to get too excited about it because you know that technology is always going to have its imperfections, just like humans. 
So I, I don't think it's going to be a 100% hard and fast solution to the problem, but it is going to be intriguing to, to see what happens. Even the old fogies in tennis have had no issue. There's been no complaining. There's been no, oh, the the system in tennis, the technology system is getting it wrong. I mean, it, it, it's been not an issue there. I don't understand why it's an issue with Major League Baseball other than, you know, oh, no, well, we might get rid of, you know, umpires in baseball. Well, I mean, they got you still have to do something as an umpire. You've still got to call things in real time. That's still got to happen. You know, guys out at home plate, you got to call uh, catcher interference stuff. There's stuff that they have to do that's not going anywhere and they've got to keep track of it and they got to tell, you know, the players what, what's going on. I mean, there are things that they're going to have to do no matter what. You're not eliminating a guy, but, you know, automation hits every business. Sorry, but it's going to happen to baseball too with some, with some of these guys. But I, I think we're, we're far from getting rid of umpires because there's just too much stuff that they got to do. Yeah. I, I don't see that. And certainly not in, in the near future. I mean, automation may take over everything. I mean, we, we may have, you know, speech synthesizers doing podcasts, Robert, someday, and you and I might be looking for other work, <laughs> but no, in, in, in all seriousness, no, you're not going to see the elimination of the plate umpire. But you know what? I kind of look at it this way. Is that if you guys had just been more consistent in, in calling the strike zone, it may not have even come to this, at least not right now. We may be talking about that 10, 20 years down the road. But to me, the umpires have kind of brought that on themselves in, in the, I, I guess, the stuck up or you know snobbish way that they seem to own the game, especially when you're talking about calling balls and strikes. All right. Well, you know why they're doing all this stuff, right? You know why all these rules are being tested out in the minor leagues this year. Well, yeah, this year because a it's you know it's a different time, a different season, and you know we're we're still going through all the COVID stuff. But you haven't said it yet. I'm waiting for you to say why they're doing it, but you haven't done it yet. The game is too slow. No, they're doing this because uh, very simply, the, this is the last year of the agreement and we're going into negotiations this off season. And well, that, that's a good point. That's it. That's a good point. Yeah, that is it. Yeah. They're doing it now while they can They're Maybe they're hoping that the players will, Hey, you know, some of these rules are pretty cool. We'll uh, maybe we'll vote that into the new deal. Well, good luck with that. And I don't think it's going to be as simple as they probably make it th- seem. Yeah. That's, uh, that's exactly why this is happening. It's uh, this could all be in the negotiations with the union and you know, owners and the whole thing this off season, that that's where it's going to get interesting. And, you know, we haven't talked a bunch about that, but it, it's, that's going to be a big deal as that deadline approaches. And we'll see where we are as far as, you know, fans in the stands, you know, the money is going to be in big argument, but I don't think the players are going to have quite as big a foot to stand on because, you know, it's going to take the economy a little bit to bounce back. I don't think it's just like this, the the virus ends and everything's immediately back to normal and companies are just willing to spend what they used to spend, you know, on advertising. It's just not going to happen like that. No, but I, I just don't see the players buying into that either. I mean, they, they never seem to. I just I feel like there, there still could be a standoff. You know, hopefully it doesn't lead to a work stoppage. But I don't know. These days, anything is possible. But I, I just I don't think the players are going to buy into that. They They hardly ever do. So. We may need to brace ourselves for, you know, a long discussion about this, Robert, before it's all over. Well, have we procrastinated enough uh, for, about getting to the to the Rockets and the Texans at this point? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there is still the Cougars. We, we can put it off a little longer if you want to talk about the Cougs, but maybe we should save them to the end and end on a good note, just like 
we started with the Astros on a good note, right? Yeah, let's let's save the Cougars for a little bit. Uh, but let's start with the Rockets. And there is something positive there because Kevin Porter, uh, let's start with him. And I warned everybody to slow their roll on this Kevin Porter Jr. hype train last week. And, and I still beg for caution on him. But I got to say, oh, I'm impressed so far. The 17 points per game in his first three games is all right. That's pretty good. Although he's only shooting 40%. He's struggling from three. But, you know, it's early. It's been just three games. Steven, this is what has really caught my attention. Not only does he have the look of a future all-star, there's just something about him, but also his passing is better, way better than I imagined. Even though I was seeing the numbers in the G League, he said over eight assists per game, and it's nine assists per 36 minutes, and he's going to get a lot of 36 minutes uh, in, in the next uh, few weeks because – uh, we, we might have some other things that are going on, guys getting traded, um, injuries, stuff like that, that looks like it's on the horizon. But Kevin Porter Jr. has been fun to watch. Yeah, he has been fun to watch. And what was it that we were talking about in our last podcast about the lack of passing, especially with John Wall, you know, and the, the lack of assists. So it's good to see somebody like Kevin Porter Jr. I mean, I just wouldn't have thought this quickly that he'd be coming up. But he does look impressive. He's he's still, you know, young and developing. And, you know, of course, he's surrounded by a lot of guys that, uh, you know, you, you don't have the, a lot of the main guys in there. So I'm thinking that once everybody gets back, Christian Wood and, you know, some of these other guys that Kevin Porter Jr. may look even better. And, you know, he, he's not bad in the rebounding. What did he have? Ten rebounds, I think, in the um, Jazz game. So he's he's looking good. And, and right now the Rockets need all the positives they can get. And they might as well you know, try him and KJ Martin out of there just because of the way that, you know, they just, they just keep losing Robert. I, I keep waiting for him to win and they will someday. Of course, it's not going to last forever, but right now we will take Kevin Porter jr. Yeah. We're doing this Tuesday morning. So, you know, they got a shot to win potentially Tuesday night because Christian Wood is at least questionable. So maybe he's getting closer to coming back. And speaking of Christian Wood, you talked about the fact that Kevin Porter a uh, better passer than John Wall. You know, I don't I don't know a, a basic passer that he's better than John Wall. Well now wait, I didn't say I didn't say he was better than John Wall. I'm just saying that we were talking about the the lack of assists regarding John Wall. No, I'm not ready to put Kevin Porter Jr. as a better player than John Wall in any aspect. Let's talk passing because when I saw Christian Wood run pick and rolls earlier in the season with James Harden, it, it was really frustrating because you saw what could be an incredible pick and roll tandem. And we knew on the other hand, that Harden was out the door. So that was why it was right. frustrating. And when I've watched John wall and I'm going to say it, I think Kevin Porter jr. Can be better because when I've watched John wall run the pick and roll with wood, it's been disappointing, but Steven, I'm actually excited to see Porter and, and Wood run this pick and roll. There's way more potential there. Porter's even made Justin Patton look good, and that's not easy to do. And I have to admit that his game, it, it's got some James Harden to it, especially when I see him running pick and roll. John Wall, I don't know what it is, but he, he just never showed me anything with the Christian Wood uh, pick and roll. And, and Christian Wood, how easy of a pick and roll guy is he? He's got three-point range, but when he goes to the basket, he's such an incredible uh, catcher of the basketball inside, great hands, and he's a great finisher, and and, and Wall just couldn't do anything with that. So I, I can't wait to see him and, and Porter go go uh, 
do the pick and roll a little bit, little bit. Hopefully tonight, maybe soon. Yeah, hopefully soon. And, and you know, there are just some players who make other players better. And Christian Wood's one of those guys. And let's be honest; he he just makes the whole team better when he's in there. It's no coincidence the Rockets have hit such a slide. I mean, I, I certainly didn't think they would, you know, lose sixteen some odd games in a row just with him being out. But boy, getting him back and it may take him a while to kind of get his footing. But yeah, I'm kind of with you. I I want to see more of Kevin Porter Jr. and and as I mentioned a little while ago, just getting some of these guys like Christian Wood back and and remaining healthy can only make players like Kevin Porter Jr. even better than what he's looked so far. The easy thing might be to go, hey, get John Wall back in there. What can John Wall and Kevin Porter do? But I I think it's going to be an advantage if, as Yahoo Sports Chris Haynes says, John Wall might need his knee scoped at some point this season. That's what they're saying. So you want to see Kevin Porter with the basketball in his hands more, and you want to see him and and Christian Wood work together. To me, that could be a good thing because, look, they are not making a run at a play-in game. This team is not good enough. They they can't get, even with Christian Wood coming back, I don't think they can get it together quick enough. Eric Gordon now we know is going to be out for the next few weeks because, of course, Eric Gordon's injured again. Uh, he's got a groin injury. So, look, let's be honest here. They need to be as bad as they can because they got to give themselves, as we've said in previous weeks, the best chance at keeping the first round pick, a, a potential top four pick. If they can hold on to this pick, it's it's going to be top four. If not, it's gone. So, you know, let's see uh, Porter and Wood play together and let's see what they can do. And let's experience this. Is the, this is the season two experiment and see as much as that as possible uh, we know what John Wall can do. Yeah, and, and I mean, the thing with the, the knee scope, I mean, we just kind of knew, you know, the, the biggest question for John is, you know, can he can he play a full season coming back from something like that? And you kind of doubted that it would happen, but we'll just have to see. As far as the Rockets and, and playing, you know, guys like Kevin Porter Jr. And, you know, it's, it's going to be intriguing to see what they do at the trade deadline, which is, on the day that we're recording this, I think it's nine days away. It's the 25th. So that's something I guess to look forward to. But other than that, Robert, yeah, we're just going to have to look for positives like Kevin Porter Jr. and uh, hopefully getting in that top four spot because the season is definitely out the window in just about every other regard. All right. This is a little commentary here, but you know who I want to go into a foxhole with? David Nwaba. You know who I don't want to go into a foxhole with, Stephen? P.J. Tucker. Yeah, I said it. He's a full-on quitter like his bearded buddy. That was pathetic, Stephen. He, to me, has not been as focused this year as as he should have been. You know, I I get it. James Harden's gone. Maybe you go, okay, that's my chance at a championship. But it's not like this team couldn't have still been pretty good if P.J. Tucker was not shooting 30% from three and turning the ball over and and, and not playing the defense that he used to play. Christian Wood... Uh, gave you a chance to be a playoff team, and you know, so did John Wall, and maybe even Oladipo if he had come in and played better. But still, if those three guys were healthy and Eric Gordon was healthy, you definitely had a chance to be a playoff team, maybe a back end playoff team. But you know, they were rolling when Christian Wood went out. They were one game over five hundred. They were not terrible. This wasn't this sixteen game losing streak team that we're seeing right now. So you know, PJ Tucker flat out quitter and it's really sad Stephen, because I want to give PJ Tucker 
just kisses and hugs as he walked out the door, you know, because he was going to be traded. And, and now you're just left with this really, really bad taste in your mouth. Yeah, it, it's sad, Robert. I mean, it, it's disappointing, but I don't know. To me, it's not all that surprising with, with what the way things ended with P.J. Tucker with the Rockets. I mean, we saw signs of it even before the season started. P.J. was expressing unhappiness about, you know, really not sure he wanted to be with the team anymore. You know, kind of the James Harden thing there, just not as highly publicized. So, yeah, I, I don't get a guy. Look, you, what do you when when this whole thing happened, you were what, two weeks from the trade deadline? Play it out, dude. Play it out. You're going to go somewhere else. I mean, that's very obvious that the Rockets were going to try to get him out of here. I, I just don't understand how, you know, you're you're not in – this isn't a where you go to a neighborhood park and you play a pickup game. This isn't even high school. You know, this is the NBA. You're making a, a ton of money, certainly a ton of more than you and I will ever see in a lifetime. I get frustration. You know, nobody likes to lose. A lot of athletes hate to lose, but I don't get this whole thing of just deciding, you know what, I'm just going to sit out until they trade me, you know, especially with the, the team going through what it has with the injuries and, you know, some of the COVID protocols earlier in the season and just all the things that have happened. Why not just stay in there for another two weeks and then you'll go somewhere else. You can have a fresh start. So yeah, I was very disappointed about the way PJ Tucker handled himself because, you know, up until now, He's been a stand-up guy, classic, a fan favorite. You and I both like him, Robert. I mean, maybe he's not always been the most productive player, but he's been fairly consistent throughout his time with the Rockets. And I just, I hate to see it end that way, but it, it was PJ's choice, obviously. You know, just wah, wah, wah on not getting an extension. I just, I don't understand why he felt like, you know, he's a, a guy, oh, we, we, we got to run out and give an extension to because the Rockets owe him that much. Look, the Rockets gave him a chance to win championships. The Rockets gave him a chance to start. A lot of teams wouldn't have had him even as a starter, but because James Harden was on the team, P.J. Tucker was a starter. A lot of teams couldn't afford to have P.J. Tucker out on the floor as much as the Rockets had him out on the floor the last few years. The Rockets did a lot for his legacy, for his history, as a guy that was a, a journeyman, somebody that was playing overseas for years, somebody that was out of the NBA, it just seemed like PJ would have just been more appreciative of everything that he was given with the Rockets. And the fact that they didn't run out and give a 36-year-old a big extension, is, it should not have been a big deal to PJ. And, you know, that that just, I, I don't get it. Well, you, you just said it. You, you just said it. I mean, he's 36 years old and no player wants to admit that he's getting older and he's slowing down. But let's be honest, unless unless Bill O'Brien was the general manager of the Rockets, they weren't going to give an extension, that, that kind of an extension to a guy like P.J. Tucker. It just wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, I, I also want to make one last point with the Rockets uh, away from P.J. Tucker for a little bit. You know, for the last couple of years, Rockets fans, including yours truly, have gotten frustrated that Ben McLemore hasn't played more. And at some point, uh, we all thought, oh, you know, we, we got lured in by his sexy three-point shooting last year. But I need to take a moment just to apologize to Mike D'Antoni and Steven Silas because I can now see he was not photoshopped this year as he was in previous years. He, he wasn't looking as sexy. There wasn't the airbrushing. There wasn't the makeup and all that. He's shooting 31% from three this year, 34.5% overall. Steven, he, he's not as sexy as we thought he was. 
No. And, and look, Ben has had his opportunities. Let, let's just face it. And, and I want to like the guy. I mean, I, I'm sure he's a stand-up guy. I've never met him, you know, personally. I want to like him as a player. But I just feel like, you know, every time he, he, you think he's starting to show some flashes, he just goes back in the tank. And, and I feel like he's had his opportunities and it hasn't measured up. So I, I think at this point, unless, you know, a miracle happens and he suddenly starts playing the way we would like him to play on a consistent basis, you know, I don't even know how much longer he's he's going to be around with the Rockets, but it, it's just a shame. You want to like the guy and you want to like him as a player, but I, I just don't think he's, I, I think he's worn out his opportunities. And as you said, he is what he is. We'll see. Maybe he plays better with another team. Maybe you can blame this on, oh, it's the Rockets and they stink and there's too much pressure for him to make shots now. Well, he was doing that even before the Rockets started stinking. I mean, he was doing this last year. Well, he, he his three-point shooting, you know, was really good, and then they weren't playing him, and that was the problem. And and But this year, his three-point shooting has been terrible. That's what he is. He's a three-point shooter. That's that's his thing. He's a gutter. It's his specialty. But you know what? It's like they say, when you get the opportunity, no matter what the circumstances, you need to make good on it. And to, to be blunt, he just hasn't made good on it. Yeah, he's, you know, had plenty of opportunities and maybe they're not as wide open as when James was here, but there's still a lot of wide open shots that he's missed. Let's go to the Texans um, because, look, the Texans, they're busy. They're keeping busy and and we're not we're not going to get into much about them because a couple days ago I did an hour podcast with Troy, better known as Texans Cap on Twitter. We went through two trades over the weekend and all of their off-season activity up until the end of the weekend. Not only is he just incredibly knowledgeable about all the cap machinations, but he knows some inside sources. So make sure to listen to the last podcast on the feed. But Stephen, right after we're done, Monday, they go out, they sign 10 guys. Casario, just like a little worker bee the last few days. Well, maybe that explains why uh, Nick Casario hasn't answered my dinner invitation. I've been trying to reach him. Um, but yeah, you said he's been very busy. I, I actually had a friend of mine call me yesterday afternoon. He says... But Nick Casario, he's not only buying the groceries, he's cooking the food. You know, that old term we use uh, to describe somebody who's doing it all. Uh, I, I would have to, what did they make, 10 moves? So I guess on, on both hands, all fingers on both hands, I'd have to count how many moves the Texans made. And that's just in that one day. Oh, yeah. it's It's been a ton. <laughs> Let me, I'll, I'll get to the first guy that they, they signed, or one of the first guys that they signed on Monday was a three-time Pro Bowl return man, Andre Roberts. Played with the Ravens, Lions, Falcons, and Jets over the years. 33 years old, so he's an older guy, but all of those Pro Bowl appearances, all three of them are in the last three years. So he's not some has-been. Steven, it might be nice to have a good return man for the first time in years. Well, you know, there was a time we kept saying that about the quarterback position, and and right now we're still saying that about the the return position. When are the Texans going to find a guy, even if he's not, you know, I don't know, Billy White Shoes Johnson or you know, a hall or, you know, somebody like that, somebody that just gets the job done. So hopefully Andre Roberts can get the job done. And, you know, we won't have to keep talking about this issue year after year. They also signed former Cowboys and Raiders defensive tackle Malik Collins, one year, $6 million deal. He's mostly been a starter over the last few years, getting about 20 tackles a season, not really a pass rusher, but just a solid inside guy who might help with their terrible run defense. They're going to be in a four, three instead of the three, four, so he might matter. And and let me just quickly run through the other signings. And I'd say all these guys, the rest of them, they're just the very definition of journeyman. Yeah. Uh, the contracts you'll hear are just, you know, they're, they're partially guaranteed if that. So I'm going to run down the salaries. Don't think, oh, man, this is 
a lot for that guy or a lot for this guy. Cause let's see if th- some of these guys even make the team, but you've got former Ravens wide receiver, Chris Moore, one year, 2 million, former Falcons and Packers guard, Jordan McRae, two years, 4 million, former Packers and Cowboys inside linebacker, Joe Thomas, one year, 2 million, former Patriots, Eagles, Jets, and Ravens safety, Terrence Brooks, one year, 2 million, former Cowboys, Bills, and Browns defensive tackle, Vincent Taylor, one year, 2 million, former Chiefs, Packers, Eagles, and Colts cornerback and special teamer, Tremont Smith, one year, 1.3 million. Did I say these guys were journeymen? Uh, (laughs) Former Seahawks, Chiefs, Jets, Bears, and Washington inside linebacker, Kevin Pierre-Louis, Two years, eight million, and former Patriots, Eagles, and Dolphins outside linebacker Kamu Gruje Hill, one year, three point two five million. Break them all down for me, Stephen. Oh yeah, let's. We could spend a whole podcast talking about these guys. I mean, these are clearly the, the Texans weren't going to be making splashes in free agency, but it, at the very least, you're hoping. I mean, it's almost like they've revamping their entire defense with a lot of these moves, and then some of the ones before that. So you know, some of these names. Uh, you might recognize vaguely, uh, but <laughs> most of them, you know, you're just like, okay, I'll have to go back and look at PFF and, you know, some of these other sites to kind of study up on these guys. You're running to your Wikipedia page a lot. Yeah, exactly. The other thing about you, you just look through some of these guys and I just feel like, again, they're, they're camp bodies. Uh, they're not right. necessarily like, oh, this they've solved this problem or that problem or that guy's going to get some regular playing time. Some of them might be special teams guys that could make a splash. And, you know, that's the one thing about Casario. We talked to an insider with the Patriots a few weeks ago, my buddy, Chris Simino up there. And he, he said, you know, Casario and the Patriots have always been good at putting together special teams. And that's something that, you know, I think is important. And it's something that the Texans have sometimes forgotten over the years. Yeah, they have. And I think a lot of fans forget just how important special teams is. And, you know, something that you mentioned, you and Troy talked about in the podcast, which I thought was rather interesting, maybe not so much surprising to me, but interesting, is that the Texans may be sniffing around for a new punter. Uh, that That's kind of interesting. It might, might be something to keep an eye on. So, you know, it's clearly that the Texans are at least trying to make some moves that, you know, they can they do much worse? <laughs> On the defensive end, then, uh, you know, the defensive part of the team than they did last year? I don't think so. Again, go back and listen to the podcast with Troy because he's got some real insight. He knows some stuff that a lot of fans might not know. He's got a little inside information on some things, and he talks about that a little bit. And Man, does he know the cat. Well, he can have it as far as I'm concerned. He's more than welcome to study those numbers all he wants, but (laughs) I'll leave it to people like him to do that. Yeah, the NFL is a cap gymnastic nightmare from season to season. So knowing that stuff actually matters, and it used to not be something that we talked about in sports. You know, I was listening – to one of the radio shows uh, in the last couple of weeks, Stephen, and one of the hosts was saying, you know, that's one of the things that's made sports not as much fun is we're always talking about money, but money matters when you're building a roster in all these sports. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I'd have to agree with that, Robert. I, I just I remember the days we just discussed the games that were played and the players that played them. But, you know, just like in life, I mean, money's important in real life away from sports. So it only stands to reason that the bigger business sports becomes, then the more money is going to be an issue. And that's why a lot of times you, you'll see guys who you thought, wow, that guy's a good player. What did they cut him for? 
it's all about the money. That, that's really what it is. boils down to with these owners now. I mean, it's always been that way, but the more money that's going in and, and coming out, then the more it's going to be an issue with this sort of thing. Let's go somewhere where they just don't care about money. The, the NCAA tournament, the NCAA, they have, they don't care about money at all. But let's go. Yeah, if only. Let's go to them because U of H is a two seed. They're playing Cleveland State. Steven, I need a complete breakdown of Cleveland State. What do you know? Well, I can tell you what. I, I know what they used to do. You know, they, they pulled an upset in 1986. We probably remember that if you go back far enough. You're old enough like we are uh, against Indiana. And then in uh, 2009, they they pulled an upset. They were the 13th seed, knocked off Wake Forest that year. Yeah, Wake Forest. So, yeah, Cleveland, I, I don't know. I mean, that's obviously two totally different teams, and it's been, what, 12 years since they've been here. So, you know, the, the Cougars do have a chance, I think. It, at least they aren't in the same bracket, you know, the same region as, say, Baylor or Gonzaga. So, uh, but again, this is the NCAA tournament. And I tell you what, Robert, I, I'm just glad that we even have an NCAA tournament this year. You talk about a gaping hole last year, not even having it. The fact that we have it this year, and I don't know, for some reason, I know that the tournament is always, you know, something weird, unexpected, crazy happens. Something tells me it's it's really going to ramp up in that way this year. I don't know if it's just because they, they had a year off, but some of the circumstances are a bit different. You know, you're you're going to be in kind of a semi-bubble situation. So, it, you know, we can sit here and say the Cougars should at least get to the Sweet 16, maybe even the Final Four. But, man, this is the NCAA tournament. I'm just not ready to, you know, throw my hat in the ring and say the Cougars are going to be national champions. But – they're certainly putting themselves in a good position to be up there. Yeah, let's talk about the team in a little bit, but I, I do want to say this. The Cougars are playing in round one in Assembly Hall, which is Indiana. That's the where the Hoosiers play. And Stephen, that, that's one thing that it, it's kind of exciting, and I, I get it that we're not going to have the fans particularly. However, it is cool that they're not playing in a warehouse. It was horrible year after year to watch every college basketball game in the tournament in these huge 20,000 uh, seat arenas where there was just, it felt like there was no intimacy when you watch the game on television. It's like they were playing with these terrible basket backgrounds. Guys were not shooting the ball all that well because I think they just uh, were having difficulty seeing the rim because these arenas that they play in usually are so big. Now the early games are in the, you know, some of these NBA sized arenas and maybe they're more built for basketball, but as the tournament goes along, you know, we see it gets bigger and bigger and, and, and it, it might be cool to see it in, in an assembly hall, not the screaming fans necessarily that normally we're seeing, but it's still something. Yeah, it's still something and it's better than nothing. And, and I know the players have kind of, I guess, gotten used to for most of this season, not having, you know, fans screaming at you when you're at the free throw line or, you know, doing other things. It, it, they've, they've had some time to get used to that. But still, it's it's going to be an interesting, I don't know, aura or, you know, what to not have that in the NCAA tournament because it, it was so much about the ambiance. And, and, yeah, some of the arenas, trashy to say the least. But, yeah, that's one of the reasons I think that the tournament is going to be intriguing as much as just that it's March Madness and crazy things happen anyway. I watched the Cougars this weekend, and I've been watching them really closely over the last few weeks. And Quentin Grimes just gets better and better and better. And what he's doing is what you need from a star player to win the NCAA tournament. And that, to me, is the big positive 
as we go into the tournament. It's it's not just getting back Fabian White, which we've talked about. It's not just guys like Dicky Giroux coming on and getting better, but that's a thing right now. Dicky Giroux, I'm seeing him start to hit three pointers a little bit more consistently too. I feel much more comfortable when he shoots threes and, and you just can't leave him wide open like you used to. But if you look at the Cougars right now and the guys that can hit some big shots for you when you need them, uh, there's guys out there and there, you know, you get into that tournament and, and that's the kind of thing that you need the defense and the rebounding. We know that's going to travel, but the guys that hit the big shots that turns you from sweet 16 to final four teams. Well, and that's why it, it was good that I think that Memphis gave them such a tough time, you know, over a week ago and you had Trayvon Mock hit that shot at the end of the game. You know, those are the things you need to get used to doing when you get in the NCAA tournament, because it, you know, if it comes down to the final minute, the final couple of seconds, I mean, the Cougars have seen that happen in the tournament, unfortunately go against them with Indiana and Kentucky, you know, and, and then, of course, way back in the 80s, you know, the time that they could have won the national championship against North Carolina State, that last second shot that killed them. You know, those are the shots that you're going to see a lot in the NCAA tournament. And you have guys like Quentin Grimes. I mean, not only, you know, he's the fire plug of this team when it comes to shooting, but, you know, he, there were a couple of times where he would – there was one play where he stole the ball in the, in the Memphis game, goes down the floor, and just slams it. Just a, a guy that can really make some stuff happen. And, you know, I don't want to jinx him, but he could be a guy that could really shine in this tournament if, if all the cards are played right. Absolutely. The big thing for the Cougars, they're playing in the Illinois bracket. No disrespect, but that's not the Baylor – or the Gonzaga bracket. So that's a good thing because, you know, if, if you run out an NBA team, they're going to have difficulty. They don't have, maybe have the size, that sort of thing. But I, I don't think Illinois is that. And look, Illinois, I, I get it. They probably played better as the year went, went along, but my Missouri Tigers, they made the tournament. They're a seven seed. They're okay. They're not bad. They've been, you know, up in top 10 or 15 this year, but Missouri beat Illinois earlier this year. So, you know, Illinois is a one seed and I was like, well, we beat them. And I don't think, I don't think Missouri's, you know, all that super talented and all that fantastic. And definitely the Missouri Tigers, as good as their defense and rebounding have been this year, it's, it's nowhere close to the university of Houston. So that's a good sign for me, Stephen, that's something that you, you immediately were looking for when the Cougars were seated. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I, I thought they would be a two seed, especially if they won the AAC tournament, which of course they did. I, I figured two was was where they were going to be. The, you know, the thing with the Cougars is that they do seem to sometimes have trouble with the press. They had a trouble against it against Memphis in the AAC semifinals, especially in that second half. Man, you you can't go through stretches like that in the NCAA tournament, even against some of the lesser teams. So they're they're going to have to be on their game. But yeah, defense and rebounding. And the shooting is starting to come along. So I, but I also have to ask you the obvious question, Robert, as a Mizzou alum, you know, if, if Houston and Missouri face off, who are you going to cheer for? <laughs> oh, geez. I, let's get to that point. Cause that'd be in the final four, like Missouri in the second round, they got Gonzaga. I mean, if they I get past that. the first round, it's over with by the second round. Well, all right. But you know, you never know. So I, I just had to ask. Let's get to that problem. I would love that problem to happen sometime in an NCAA. You can tournament. think about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the other team in Houston that is going to be playing is TSU down the street is playing Mount St. Mary's in the, in the play-in game. They won the conference tournament. 
They beat Prairie View, another local team. And if they win against Mount St. Mary's, they get former Rocket Jawan Howard's number one seed Michigan team. Ooh, yeah. And don't envy that. But, you know, the TSU, they, I think they were in the 2017-18 season. So it's been several years there. So, you know, what's interesting, Robert, is you have seven Texas teams in the NCAA tournament. Of course, Houston and Texas Southern. And then you had uh, Texas, Texas Tech and Baylor. And then you had North Texas and Abilene Christian. So, well, Texas is really well represented in the term. Seven of the 68 teams coming from the Lone Star State. So that's a really good thing. You speak about Texas. They're playing one of the Texas teams. They're playing Abilene Christian. UT's a three seed. Any chance the Longhorns can make a serious run? Shock smart. You know, he used to do that before he got to Austin. Yeah, there is a chance. I mean, you keep away. Yeah, Texas, some people say, well, Texas got a lucky break because Kansas had to pull out. And yeah, that's true. I, I don't know. This Longhorns team is so funny, Robert. They, they, there are stretches where you feel like, man, they're, they could be a sweet 16 team. And then there are stretches where they stub both their toes and, and they just, I, I don't know. I just can't figure this team out. I keep, I keep waiting for them to get there. And Shaka Smart has had a few years to get them there. But yeah, I'd say this year they have as good a chance as any. You know, they're, of course, they are in the, the same region as Michigan. So that's going to be interesting to see if they even get to that point. I'll just finish off uh, as far as the tournament is concerned. Let me just finish off this one thing with the Cougars. And it, it's going to be fun if they can really make that run that we think that they can make. Because Houston, there's just been so much. It, it's just been such a hard year in Houston sports. And one thing about the Houston Cougars, they make a run. We don't have to hear about Deshaun Watson. We don't have to hear about James Harden. We don't have to hear about trash cans. You know, it, 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 it's it, it's just going to be pure basketball, sports, great story, a program that has waited a long time to get back to this point. And they're finally there. And it's a bunch of good stories. And it's a bunch of guys that yell. You, you really enjoy watching play and really enjoy rooting for. I'm looking forward to watching this Cougar run, and hopefully it's, it's a long one. Yeah, same here, Robert. I mean, you, we just we got to pull for them not only just because they're the Houston Cougars or, or you know, our team, but you want to see them go as deep in this tournament as possible because we are just dying. We're, we're itching for some kind of a good story to follow in Houston sports. And, you know, when you look at the Cougars, I, I mean, you you got Kelvin Sampson, who to me is – just as underrated a college coach as you will ever find. You know, you don't hear you don't hear a lot of buzz around the nation about Calvin Sampson. Yeah, people are starting to take notice of Houston. You know, they they of course, but most of the references you hear are, you know, comparisons to Phi Slamma Jamma. And they haven't been to this point since Phi Slamma Jamma or haven't had as good a team as, as Phi Slamma Jamma back then. But Calvin Sampson is one of the most underrated college coaches. His intensity he stays on his guys. You know, maybe some people feel he's a little too tough on them, but I just, I love the way that the team is coached. And as you said, they've, they've got some feel-good stories on this team. And you just, you know, look at some of the other Houston teams and such dis disarray, lousy ownership, bad coaching. It's just nice to have a, a story that through and through, this, this team is solid and we just got to cheer for them to go as deep in the tournament as they can. And hey, nothing wrong with, wishing that they just win a national championship because, boy, Houston could sure use it right now. I'd like to see Houston, the city, get behind this team. Like, it become 
a city team in the way it was, you know, 35, 40 years ago. And, and that would be fun. Yeah. And I've been disappointed. You know, I think even in five slam Jamma, they, they drew decently as far as the fans go. And of course I know, you know, it's a different dynamic right now, as far as that goes, but it just seems that you really have to work hard for Cougar basketball to be a big deal, even when it is a big deal, as far as getting the fans to get behind it. Look, you know, <laughs> they're really the only basketball team that's doing anything. I, I think, you know, the the Rice women had a pretty good season. U of H women are, are make, having a good season. But, you know, as far as men's basketball, the Cougars are it because the Rockets sure aren't. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And, you know, it, it's not about necessarily the fans. I just want to see the buzz. I want to see the buzz yeah. that, you know, and I get it. You, you need a Nakeem Olajuwon maybe or Clyde Drexler. Or, I mean, that was such a unique thing that happened the five slamma jamma experience and part of it was the five slamma jamma that's what made it such a you know big deal a high wire act that it was like a circus coming to town when those guys would go out there but still you know maybe you start building the program here and, and it gets to be more fun and I, I you know you can't repeat that but i would at least like to see that buzz i mean that's the big thing for me well absolutely i mean any kind of buzz as we said right now will be a good thing so i'm looking forward to Sitting back and watching on Friday, you know, the tournament's actually a little different format this year, Robert. You have, I think, the playoff, uh, play-in games are Thursday, and then you have Friday and Saturday as kind of your first-round games. That That's going to be a little something to get used to because it's a bit different now. Last thing I got uh, for the show, what are the best boxers who ever lived? Marvelous Marvin Hagler died suddenly at the age of 66 this past weekend. You much of a boxing fan ever Stephen? did you ever get you know that? i used to watch it a lot back in the 70s and 80s I, I kind of soured on it i think in the 90s and i even used to cover amateur boxing here in austin back in the 80s so i i was a boxing fan at one point not so much anymore i've got a quick Hagler story that's kind of fun and i'm going to take everybody back to 1987 when Hagler fought sugar ray leonard one of the most anticipated and legendary fights of all time Hagler hadn't lost a fight in 11 years sugar ray had been retired for three years, had only fought once in the previous five years. It was Sugar Ray's first fight as a middleweight. Hagler had knocked out all but one opponent in the previous six and a half years. I mean, he was dominating. That was the great Roberto Duran fight. It went the distance. It was fantastic. Does this sound familiar to you, Steven? Do you remember all this stuff? <laughs> yeah, I do remember. I remember that fight, and I was always a big Sugar Ray Leonard fan. Uh, was hoping that he could make that comeback and, and beat Hagler. So I, yeah, I do remember that fight. So at the time of the fight, I was about 15 years old in high school at Strake Jesuit. I get a friendly sports argument. Me, me and another guy get into this little friendly sports argument. Uh, one of my buddies at, at school, and he said Hagler would win. I said Sugar Ray. We, we go back and forth for a couple of minutes. Then he said, let's bet. I'll give you 10 to 1 odds. If you bet $10 uh -huh. or whatever you've got, I'll give you you know, a hundred, let's say if Sugar Ray wins. Well, I had no money because I was just your average 15 year old. And I kind of questioned if he was good for the money. So no bet ever took place. However, it's worth noting that he was working at a car dealership on the side. So maybe he did have the money. So as we all know, Sugar Ray wins the fight. And I knew what I was talking about, of course. <laughs> and by the way, that fight was such a brawl that Hagler said, quote, it was the closest I've been to death. So this was a, I mean, if you haven't seen it, go find it on YouTube. It's out there. But there's one part to this story that really makes it, I think, more interesting is the guy who wanted to make the bet with me later made some better bets over the years. About 11 or 12 years later, I'm watching 
the National ABC Nightly News. There's a feature story on him, and I had lost track of him right after high school. So it turns out he had become a dot-com millionaire and sold his first big venture for $820 million. He then developed one of the very first music streaming services and sold that to Apple. So he was a a pioneer, really, not only in the dot-com world, but in in the streaming service world. If you look him up, his name is Bill Nguyen, but we were in high school. He was Vu Nguyen. True story. Well, you know what, Robert? Maybe you inspired him after after losing that bet to, uh, you know, really hunker down and, and just motivate him to get better at, at you know, taking gambles. I, I mean, maybe you can take some credit for his, you know, multi-million dollar ventures. Uh, you know, anything you can do, right? You, I bet you what you're still friends with him now, huh? Well, we lost track. And then w- when I got back to Houston, I actually found him, you know, on, on email or something. This is before, you know, social media and everything. And I found him and I emailed him and said, you know, hey, I'm back in Houston and I'm doing stuff with the Rockets, and I, you know, I saw the story that they did it on you a couple of years ago, and you know, congratulations! It sounds like you've, you know, done some really incredible stuff. And and he emailed me back, and he said, you know, hey, that's cool, that's really cool what you're doing with the Rockets, and I would love doing something like that. And real nice email back from him. But I remember Stephen; he always talked about money, how much he wanted to make. It, he was about the bottom line dollar. And the funny thing was that a lot of times you, those guys get caught up in, you know, this and that, and they, and it might get a little bit, you know, maybe shady or something like that. But no, nah, I think he's been pretty much on the up and up and he got there. He did what he wanted to do. He became a pretty wealthy guy. And just, I, I never forget that story when I hear about Marvin Hagler, or even Sugar Ray. Well, you know, it's interesting, the people that we meet and we may have a chance encounter with them or we may know them for a while when we're young and we just have no idea, you know, that years later we're going to look up and wait, that guy is a, like a, a congressman or, a, a you know, a, a rich millionaire or, you know, a big businessman or something or an athlete or, I mean, you just, it's it's interesting that what a small world it is sometimes. But yeah, that fight was quite something. I mean, with Sugar Ray Leonard, one of the reasons I always liked him, he was a scrapper. I mean, when you got in a fight with Sugar Ray, you were in a fight, a real fight. And that was definitely one of the better fights that I remember seeing back then. And look, I mean, we, we do a lot on this show because me and Steven are a little bit older, maybe than a lot of you listening, but we do a lot of talking about, you know, the good old days, but boxing, it was the good old days. It was more fun back then. There were more great fights. There were more interesting fighters and, even bigger than all that, you could watch the fights on television. It, 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 yeah, no without pay per view. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was there. It, it was kind of coming into its own at that point. But still, a lot of the major fights you could get on network television, or I think ESPN. You know, when it first came on, I remember I used to watch top ranked boxing on Friday nights on ESPN back in the early '80s with my dad. Uh, you know, it's pretty cool to watch some of these up and coming fighters, and then you'd see them in the big fights. So. Yeah, boxing was a big deal back then, and you could actually watch a lot of the major fights. But now, you know, with UFC and, and that sort of thing, most of the, the really big fights are all on pay-per-view. And Marvin Hagler was a tough guy. I mean, oh, that yeah. guy was – I mean, I, oh, yeah. I, I want to use other words, but he was tough. He was a tough guy. <laughs> and that fight with Sugar Ray was such a cool deal because there was just that big contrast in styles. You know, Sugar Ray – was the flash of a Muhammad Ali and the, and, and the substance was more 
Hagler and he's the guy, the blue collar guy, maybe more so than the guy that, you know, everybody was like, yeah, I could see myself being him and none of us could see ourselves being Sugar Ray Leonard. Sugar Ray was brash or could be, you know, he come off that way. But I just I liked his intensity and just, you know, I, I was always a big Sugar Ray fan. But yeah, Marvin Hagler, you can't you can't count that guy out when you're talking about great fighters for sure. Hope we made this one fun. Steven, this was, I think, well, maybe our longest show in a, in a super long, we, well over an hour. It didn't for this seem one. like it, though. It, you know, it went by really quick. We had so much to talk about. Before we close things out, just want to remind everybody, like always, you can uh, message us through Twitter, Facebook, or email info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. Looking forward to the Cougars this weekend. And otherwise, I just want to wish everybody the best and stay healthy and safe, everyone. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.